0: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 28th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about Warner Brothers' discovery. Is the company's dismal stock price undercutting David Zaslav's promise to take the company to the promised land? And we talk about the NFL on Amazon. Is Bezos World happy with their Thursday night broadcast? And later on, Julia Alexander stops by to talk about how horror movies have become an unexpectedly powerful financial lifeline at the box office and for streamers, in an era when Hollywood is struggling to figure out the big screen after the pandemic. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who I like to talk to about all things media, whatever media means. Um, And uh, I feel like I should start opening these episodes by apologizing to Dylan uh, because John and I for Media Monday always (laughs) steal (laughs)
1: Dylan's really good
0: reporting for our own. So
1: Sorry, man. No, it's okay. On the one hand, I feel, you know, it's like a huge compliment. And then on the other hand, it's there's a little (laughs) bit of a like, well, I mean, fuck you too, you know? (laughs) Well, we always cite you by name, of
0: course. I know. I'm grateful. I want to talk to you about Warner Brothers' discovery. The stock price continues to go down. And obviously, media companies are seeing a bunch of losses on Wall Street throughout this year as the market goes down. But, you know, he came in with this... Mandate to cut costs, write the ship, fix the stock price. You know, i I hate to like ask these questions because people on Wall Street have such short attention spans, and I complain about that a lot. But
1: is he doing enough? Look, I think it's a really big problem. And I do think that the I do think the street is nearsighted in many ways. and 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 I think the the way that David and his leadership team think about it is here is a company that has been mismanaged, in their view, for a very long time, where a lot of sort of excess costs and excess positions were tolerated. And they feel like they're the first people to come in and really run it like a tight ship and that that necessitates a whole lot of really ugly cutting and, and a lot of destruction and that the market is seeing all of these decisions but not necessarily seeing the long-term benefit that I think David in his head thinks okay I know what this thing is going to look like 12 to 18 months down the road I don't care if anyone else can't see that the stock might be 11 today 12 to 18 months from now it'll be 30 or 40 maybe part of that is predicated on on you actually having the faith of the market and I think that right now everyone is sort of looking at this and every time it goes down further he is losing his juice. He is losing sort of his ability to sort of justify his ownership of the company. And I do think there's this question. We talk about it. Our colleague Bill Cohen talks about it. Is this really a holdover before they sell the company to somebody else? And I think that as complicated as it must be to run a media company, and if I knew how to run a media company, I would be a media executive, not a media reporter. But at the end of the day, like the formulation is is pretty simple. You You have to create hits or cut costs. And, and creating hits requires an investment. You have to invest in things. And particularly in the creative industries, you have to invest in ways where you sort of have to take some risks. There's no science to that. It's more of an art. I think the problem here is he is having a hard time cutting enough costs to reassure the market that he is running this in a smart and sophisticated way. So he's got a lot more cutting that he has to do and a lot more pain that is going to ensue. And yet along the way, people are also saying, well, wait a second, if this company is going to be successful, then you also have to invest in creating hits and in making this a really competitive force, especially you know on the theatrical side, on the streaming side, all over the place. So my guess is that stock number probably pisses David Zaslav off every single day. And I think part of his frustration has to do with the fact that he still believes in himself and he still believes in his leadership team's ability to turn this thing around and I think they feel like they just need a little more time, and increasingly, it looks like the street is not going to give them any more time. Yeah, the street often sucks.
0: Though, <laughs> I do want to say that, like, I mean, there are larger market forces at work. There are, and and he's got to give people time to build the enterprise and their image, and then you know maybe after a year or so, you can sort of pressure test it.
1: That's right, and 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 we should note all these push notifications i'm getting these are not happening in a vacuum obviously the entire market you know is 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 down to everyone's down but wbd is just down so painfully far and at a certain point you get down that far and you start to ask questions about the long-term trajectory of the company itself hey i want to ask you about another streamer
0: actually a streamer uh, but also a company that um i just ordered um tennis balls and poop bags from uh, online, which is Amazon.
1: (laughs) Do you have a dog? Because if you don't have a dog, that's a weird order. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be super weird. Uh,
0: No, Boone needs his poop bags. Amazon announced, I think after the Chiefs Charters game two Thursdays ago, they had like 13 million viewers roughly. Mm -hmm. Um, And they skewed actually a little younger, uh, which I thought was interesting too. What's the gossip around Amazon, if, if you know any, about how this... Project is going. I mean, I'm excited for the Bengals Dolphins game tomorrow night. My friend Kaylee Hartung is a sideline reporter. I, I like the broadcast. I'm excited for it. Um, but what's the gossip around Amazon about how they how
1: they're feeling about it? They're feeling great about it. That 13 million, especially with the younger the audience trending younger, like these are all extremely positive signs. One thing that struck me though, because I was talking to an Amazon source I know who had some insight into it, is that they feel really great about that this was a driver of a lot of additional subscriptions. But I think what surprised me about that is that not unrelated to the sort of like myopia of the media itself, we tend to think about things through the prism of the sort of, you know, coastal city dwelling people that we are. And I've always felt like, well, Amazon is such a dominant force in, in something like one out of every two households in this country. How much do they really need to spend all that money on the NFL. Like, aren't people who are going to have an Amazon Prime subscription, don't those folks already have an Amazon Prime subscription? The, the, the sense I got was, A, no, that this really helped in that effort. And this is the similar thesis behind why they're spending so much money on the Lord of the Rings prequel. The other thing I got is that in needing to compete for these additional subscribers, they don't have quite the competitive moat around them. They don't think that they have a huge competitive moat around them the way that I think I do. I sort of think that Amazon is invincible because who else is going to get you anything you need in the span of two days or in some cases two hours while also providing you with this incredible streaming service that gives you access to all of the movies that you could ever want. And their feeling is actually like once you get outside of LA, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, the Walmart factor is a much bigger threat than I think you don't understand if you're not really paying close attention they actually feel like they, not only are they nowhere near done growing in this country, they also don't feel like they can rest on their laurels. I think they feel like Walmart still, you know, Walmart still poses a threat. Other companies still pose a threat. And so the NFL thing and how pleased they were with it and and the fact that 13 million people watched and the fact that according to them, they signed up so many new subscribers. To me, that says that we are going to see like, the media aspect of what they're doing is going to continue to grow more aggressive. And I think we're going to see more bids in, in the world of sport, sports rights. I think we're going to see other big budget tentpole series beyond Lord of the Rings, provided those metrics are working out in the same way for them. I don't know. I, I feel like not to, <laughs> uh, this is a little too obvious, but, but I do feel like it's day one for Amazon in terms of their entry into, you know, the media and entertainment space. The Walmart note is interesting. I mean, I think that, if you're
0: listening to The Powers That Be, if you read me and Dylan, I mean, like, you are a college-educated elite, perhaps living in a blue bubble somewhere. Um, <laughs> we don't, we, like, our own media diets are not the rest of the country's it's, media diets. Yeah. Uh, like, there are consumer habits are not the rest of the country's. And the Walmart thing made me think of a recent conversation I had with someone at Roku. And I feel this working at Snapchat, too, to be honest. Like, elites use Twitter, you know. Non elites like use Snapchat. Uh-huh. Like we have more people by a factor of like I two, know. like twice as many people are using Snap as Twitter. That's my personal rant, which you've heard a million times. But like the guy from Roku was sort of saying that that they've got like 60 million users in the U.S. It's like the number one streaming hardware platform, whatever. And like a lot of people in the room are like, "What? Right? Really? Right?" He's like, "Yeah, like like most people." are using this platform. They're not like logging in via their Samsung smart TV that's really expensive. Yeah. You know, they're buying this add-on and and that's how they're accessing content. And it's just, it's just funny that, you know, Amazon is smart to think of Walmart as a rival in that sense, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Again, this myopia, it's like we have all the data at our disposal to see how consumers behave. And yet in the New York Times, I would hazard a guess that like for every article about Yellowstone, far and away the most watched drama there have been 10 articles about Succession, which really, like, nobody <laughs> yeah, exactly. is watching outside of, you know, like, you and me and our friends. It's just sort of an enduring quality about how we think about the world, and it's really hard to break out of that. Yes. Your
0: screen is not someone else's screen. That's right. Always remember that.
1: All right, Dylan, thank you so
0: much. We will uh, try not to steal your reporting uh, on Monday, but no promises. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all yours. When we
0: come back, Ben Landy talks to Julia Alexander about war meets. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The evening standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix.
1: Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality.
3: I'm Ben Landy, here with streaming analyst Julia Alexander to talk about one of my favorite questions, what everyone should be watching, and why the correct genre is horror.
2: I love that. I love that. This is, this is the only question, I think, in my opinion. It's the only one that matters.
3: Julia, you wrote a piece for Puck last night that, first of all, was a total joy to edit, but also really fascinating to me because it confirmed a hunch that I've had for a while which is that scary movies, slashers, horror franchises, all that good stuff are actually some of the best and most reliable moneymakers for both theaters and streaming at a time when both of those things are under some pressure. What was some of the data that you are seeing in your industry?
2: To preface it, it's not revolutionary to say that horror tends to, especially if it's really good horror, tends to perform well on the budget that it's made on. Horror tends to be much cheaper to produce. It's why we get so many of like, insert name 10 here, right? Like it's just a cheaper movie to make. And so people are kind of willing to say, well, this might be our next breakout hit. This could be the next Saw. This could be the next Insidious. So we're going to, a paranormal activity, Like we're going to throw money at it and see what happens. What's really interesting over the last few years though, is that as, theaters and as, company, or as companies rather that have a theatrical business are trying to discover what type of films are more likely to get people back into theaters. While at the same time, many of these companies are also running owned and operated streaming services. They're really having this conversation, the overarching anxiety about how to distribute content to make the strongest return on investment. So if we just look at some of the data points over the last few years, like this year alone of the top, I believe it was 25 movies, three of the highest grossing are horror movies. They're hitting kind Kind of about their average. All of them coming in at about 140 million minimum um, from a box office that includes movies like The Black Phone, which came from Blumhouse, which you know really was a shocker to a lot of people. Um, so you've got a lot of stuff happening in theaters, and of course, Jordan Peele's Nope did exceptionally well. But on streaming, you also have movies like Prey, which was. You know, I believe there was a Nielsen stat that when that movie came out within this first three days, it landed as the fourth most watched show, according to Nielsen, in the United States, which is a big deal for Hulu. That doesn't really happen for Hulu. We also have from the company saying specifically that that movie was one of the most watched titles of all time on Hulu, brought in an entirely new audience of people that they were really excited about, which translates to new subscribers. And so there's this moment happening where as anxiety kind of looms large over the industry, horror has kind of become this consistent, strong heartbeat. To say that, you know, that is not necessarily saying this is ever going to replace Marvel films, but when people are kind of looking for something to really rely on, horror is once again emerging as this thing to point to.
3: The Prey movie was incredible. I watched that on Hulu and loved it, but I totally would have paid money to see it in theaters.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly it. When we think about what works theatrically, like what I tell my clients about, is there certain criteria that needs to be met? One, does this feel like something that should be experienced with a, in a communal setting? Does this feel like something I need people around me to watch? Two, is this going to take advantage of technology that I don't have at home? So that could be incredible sound systems, that could be a, a huge screen, whatever it might be. And three, does this feel like something I need to see immediately to avoid spoilers or to be part of the cultural zeitgeist conversation? If we take those things into account, there are a few genres that really perform well in theaters, the biggest one, of course, being action, because it takes advantage of all three of those. On the other side of things, you know, where do we see genres that are really floundering because of these rules? Well, that's comedy and and dramas to an extent, like independent dramas, where people are saying, actually, I can watch that on Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max as part of my subscription. And I feel like I'm getting the, the value that I perceived I would get out of it. Horror, if we think about movies like A Quiet Place, if we think about movies like The Black Phone, if we think about movies like the recently released Barbarian film, which is uh, actually has a really strong kind of week over week. It's sitting at about 29 percent drop, which is really, really strong. To put that into comparison, Thor Love and Thunder had like a 70 percent drop in its second week. You know, in its third week, Barbarian sitting at 29 percent. If we think about what those movies do, one, horror is always the type of film that is experienced best with a, in a communal setting because people react in time. They, they yell, they jump, they laugh, they yell things. It's this thing that happens. Two, for like A Quiet Place, for example that movie is reliant on really strong audio technology in a theater to really make those moments as truly terrifying as they can be and also because you're in a theater I live in Brooklyn I get fire trucks by my apartment all the time I just live on a busy road that really takes away from the ambiance of a film that you don't you get in a theater and three again if you take a movie like barbarian there's some wild twists in there and of course no spoilers but that's something that in the first two weeks it was out, it became the only movie that my friends were saying, we have to go watch this film because I just keep hearing wild things. So if you look at those three requirements for potentially having a a film that does well, not always, but potentially, horror really kind of hits that a consistent amount of times.
3: I mean, if there's one thing that has not changed about horror, it's that the upfront costs for producing not all of these movies and certainly not all the television shows, but many of the movies can be pretty low. So you know, you look at one of my favorite horror movies the last couple of years, The Witch, that costs like three or $4 million to make. And then it went on to do like 10X that at the box office. It's interesting to me that with those economics, you can actually afford to take a lot of swings at bat. So it's sort of the, the flip side of the typical mood in Hollywood that tends these days to be very conservative and risk averse. There are definitely weird horror movies out there and, and not all of them are gonna do okay, but that's fine. Because they cost so little to make, and you only need a few of them to massively overperform. I mean, it's sort of like the venture capital model of investing in startups. You really need one out of 10 hits to make a fabulous amount of money on them.
2: Yeah. And I think you just touched on something extremely important. If we look at what a lot of analysts will sometimes, you know, if they're asked this question about what they would kind of recommend for a company like a Netflix, you know, Netflix, it's really hard to make a bunch of money off a $200 million action movie if it doesn't do exactly what you need it to do. It's a risk. And for a company like Netflix, you take those risks because you're building a brand and because you want to be able to compete and because you want to be able to be in that space. But what pays the bills, right? Or kind of the holiday movies that we think of, the the Hallmark-style movies and horror films, you know? And I would be someone who would recommend for Netflix to even kind of push into that a little bit more because horror finds different audiences. Certain films might find a young female audience. Certain films might find an older male audience. And so you can really widen your demographics. Horror, because its very nature, is to kind of shock. And its very nature is to kind of be this compelling fun thing to watch with your friends, really has this advantage of potentially creating a cultural zeitgeist moment. Also, horror appeals to different taste clusters because you have the ability to take all these chances with horror, in part because the production budget is not as as steep for the most part. And because you can really take chances with it, there's this advantage that horror has to really travel further, both on streaming and potentially theatrically.
3: Yeah, I'm totally the target demographic for that because I will put on just about any horror movie on streaming. I'm not going to take a chance on some low-budget indie movie, but if I see a 90-minute a scary movie on Shudder, on AMC+, I will totally watch it. And frankly, I've exhausted almost all the ones in the catalog. So um, last question for you. Do you have any recommendations, favorite uh, horror movie of 2022 that I haven't seen?
2: Ooh, the one that I've seen this year that really kind of always comes back to me is Nope. I had some friends over last night and a bunch of them had never seen Scream, like the original. And so we watched Scream and then I rewatched Scream 5, which came out in January. And that movie is still one of my favorite movies of the year. I will say I'm most excited about Pearl, which I'm planning to see this week, which is a follow up to Ty West X, which came out a few months ago. They're kind of doing the like fast and succession style horror movies the way that Netflix did with Fear Street that really worked for Netflix. So I think all of those and then The one I always recommend people, because it's on HBO Max, if you have HBO Max, it's already there, is Malignant, which takes you on a wild ride and was truly incredible. Um, And that's kind of my go-to every year. Now, well, for the last two years now, that's been my go-to that I tell people about.
3: So good. I haven't watched X yet, but let me know how Pearl is, and uh, I'll be right behind you in the theaters. Definitely. Thanks, Julia. Appreciate you coming by. Thanks, Ben.